Hey everyone, and welcome back to Caffeine and Cats, a creepy podcast. I'm your co-host, Abby, along with Caitlin and Lou. Today, we are going to dive into some Valentine's Day villains. As always, please follow us on social media. You can find us at Caffeine and Cats Pod on Instagram and Caffeine and Cats Podcast on Facebook. Give us a like and leave a review if you enjoy hearing our stories. So before we get started, how are you ladies doing this week? I've been doing good. Um, trying to stay warm. We've been getting a lot of snow. Had like three snow days this week, so it's been pretty insane. So much snow. I'm so over it. Lou, how are you? <laughs> I'm actually suffering summer here, so please send over some snow. We can uh, trade a little bit. We'll meet you in the middle. We'll give you some cold if you give us some heat. Yes, totally. <laughs> All right. Well, Caitlin, why don't you go ahead and start us off with your story? Okay, on this episode, I'm going to be telling you the story of the murder of Tara Lynn Grant. Tara was a 34-year-old mother of two from Washington Township, Michigan, who met her end at the hands of her husband, Stephen Grant. This happened around Valentine's Day, 2007. The household was a little different because Tara was the main breadwinner for the family and Stephen was the primary caregiver of the children, along with the help of Rena, a 19-year-old au pair from Germany. The unequal balance of power often caused issues within the relationship as Stephen saw himself as the perfect mom, while Tara never even bothered to attend the children's functions. On February 14, 2007, Stephen called the Macomb County Sheriff's Office to report that Tara had been missing for five days. According to him, this wasn't the first time that she had gone missing, and that was the reason he had waited so long to report the disappearance. He also claimed that he had overheard her on the phone telling someone, I'll meet you at the end of the driveway on the evening of February 9th. He then told them that he watched her get into a dark-colored car and never saw her again. Following this, Stephen spent the next two weeks making media appearances and accusing the authorities of harassment after being pulled over and subsequently arrested for driving with a suspended license, you know, breaking the law. On March 2nd, the police executed a search warrant at the marital residence. During the search, they found a dismembered torso, which they believed to be that of Tara, in a plastic garbage bag in the garage. They immediately obtained an open murder arrest warrant for Stephen, but he had already fled. Two days later, on March 4th, authorities were able to track a phone call Stephen had made to his sister and determined his location within the Wilderness State Park in northern Michigan, which was around 225 miles away from his home. After stealing pills and liquor from his sister's house, he had gone to the park to commit suicide. When the authorities located him, he had spent the night in freezing weather without any outer clothing. He was then taken into custody and sent to the Northern Michigan Hospital to be treated for hypothermia. While in the hospital, Stephen confessed to strangling Tara to death after an argument caused by Stephen accusing Tara of spending too much time with her coworker. She had just returned that day from a business trip to Puerto Rico. While the murder happened, the couple's two young children, at that time aged six and four, were also home, fast asleep in their beds. Stephen then confessed to taking Tara's corpse to his father's tool and dye shop and dismembering her. Next, he took the remains to a nearby Stony Creek Metro Park and disposed of them. However, after finding out that the police were planning to search the park, he went back and got Tara's torso, which he then hid in a plastic black garbage bag within their garage. Once Stephen was released from the hospital, he was sent to the Macomb County and charged with homicide and disinterment and or mutilation of a dead body. On April 13, 2007, the Macomb County prosecutors released Stephen's confession 
which also included that he believed Tara was having an affair and that he himself was also having an affair with the pair. Stephen was found guilty of second-degree murder on December 24, 2007, and was sentenced to a minimum of 50 years in prison on February 21, 2008. And I was doing a little bit more research because I wanted to find out um, what had come after all this. So this is what I found. Tara's sister, Alicia, or Alicia, was appointed to represent Tara's estate. She then proceeded to file a wrongful death civil suit against Stephen. Alicia and her husband also have been raising the children at their home in Ohio. Stephen's father committed suicide in 2008 after being unable to cope with the actions of his son. And the children actually have a part in the story too, because as they grew older, they became more involved with raising awareness of domestic violence and hold an annual walk called Tara's Walk to raise money and awareness for victims of domestic violence. So that was a nice little tidbit to end. Um, Definitely. Because everything right. was all kind of depressing. Yeah, for such a horrible story, that's something good that they can do. For sure. I mean, it's good to see them evolve. Obviously, this is going to ruin their lives, but they seem to be grabbing that bull by the horn and moving on with it. So Definitely. I never understand why... I mean, why dismember her? It should take time. I mean, and time that you're actually doing it and thinking about it. You really don't understand. I mean, maybe to scatter around the remains, but the fact that he went and only got her torso, I don't know. Right. Why not Why not her head or her hands? I mean. Yeah, right. I don't know. And I didn't read anything about the other body parts ever being recovered. So I have no idea what happened to him. It sounds like he thought he had it planned out, but he just messed up. And that's why he got second degree and not first degree. I'm not sure, but he caught real got caught real fast. So. <laughs> <laughs> At least there's that. Mm. All right, who's going next? Um, I guess that's my turn. Um, and I have a similar story, unfortunately, but I guess that's why we're doing this. So <clears throat> um, in my story, it appeared that Dr. John Hamilton and, and wife Susan had the perfect marriage. During 14 years they were together, he proved to be quite the romantic. Um, he will get her a porch for the wedding day, and that was just the beginning of his extravagant gifts. He showered Susan with expensive presents and amazing vacations. Now, they met in 1985, and they soon married two years later. After their marriage, Susan began working at Dr. Hamilton's practice. He was a highly re regarded OBGYN in the community. Um, oh, by the way, this all happens in Oklahoma. Now, from the outside looking in, life appeared to be perfect for the couple. It was in Valentine's Day 2001 when Dr. Hamilton left the office between surgeries to exchange validated Valentine's Day card with his wife. That's my first red flag, if you ask me. Now, however, when he arrived home, he made a gruesome discovery. In the bathroom, he found his wife laying in a pool of her own blood, deceased. Paramedics observed Susan had been strangled with two of her husband's neckties. She was also repeatedly bludgeoned on the, on the head with a blunt instrument. The object was never found. The injuries were so severe, the parts of her brain were exposed and her face was unrecognizable. Now, from the start, there were many indicators that led the police to make Dr. Hamilton's 
Dr. Hamilton, their number one suspect, because of course, our, the, number, the number one rule of true crime is that it's always the husband. Now, there was no forced entry into the home, no items were stolen from the house, and despite the amount of bloodshed, there weren't any bloody prints at the scene. While investigating the home, the police found a Valentine's Day card from Susan to John, and it read, quote, I bought this two weeks ago, so I guess maybe it doesn't seem as appropriate, but I do love you. Have a great day, Susan, end quote. So maybe the, the, their relationship wasn't as picture perfect as it seemed. Now, another clue that the marriage may have begun to sour was when Susan found John had been making phone calls to a topless dancer. In fact, there were dozens of calls to this woman on his cell phone. Friends of Susan said she accused him and she began to think about asking for a divorce. At trial, the doctor had many supporters. The community refused to believe that Dr. Hamidal was capable of such a crime, but it all came down to blood evidence. Dr. Hamilton was observed by paramedics covered in his wife's blood. However, despite his claim of performing CPR on Susan, there was, a, there was a lack of blood on his mouth and face. Not having a trace of blood on his face was impossible given the severity of Susan's injuries. Paramedics also observed him performing chest compressions incorrectly. And come on, he's a doctor. Now, uh, blood was also found on the steering wheel of his car, but he claimed that it was there because he moved it for the first responders because it was blocking the entryway. Lastly, the defense brought in a crime scene investigator, Tom Bevel, as an expert witness. They had him testify on the blood evidence, an area he specialized in. Now, he claimed the blood found in Dr. Hamilton's was indeed consistent with um, his story of trying to save his wife. However, he noticed something the authorities and the prosecutor expert did not. He found blood inside the right sleeve of his shirt. The defense attorney concluded by asking Pebel if there was anything the prosecution missed that was important to the case and for the jury to know. And he couldn't keep it to himself and he, he said yes. And basically from what I read, the whole case was based on that blood of uh, drop of blood inside her shirt, which was consistent with him killing his wife. Um, and he was accused and it's now doing life in prison. And this case caught my attention because it reminded me of the staircase. Um, because from what I understood and whatever I could find was that they basically accused him with circumstantial evidence. I mean, just a drop of blood inside her shirt. And technically, that's how they got the guy from the staircase, too. Oh, wow. Yep. That is an insane story, but yeah, there seems a lot pointing towards him. Yes. Yes. Um, I agree. And it also reminded me of a very famous case we have here in Argentina, which I will tell in another time, because it didn't have anything to do with Valentine's, so I didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like I'm looking forward story, to yeah. hearing that. Yep, I do have a lot like that, unfortunately. All right, well, I guess that just leaves my story then. Are you guys ready to hear it? Yep. Yep, go ahead. All right, so this week I am bringing you the murder of Denise Luthold. So Denise was a married 39-year-old mother who lived at home with her parents, her 37-year-old husband Nathan, and their three kids. 
from my understanding, the couple did missionary work in Lithuania and they were staying with Denise's parents since they had just got back from their most recent trip. However, on February 14th, 2013, Denise had not been answering her phone all day. She was even late picking their daughter up from daycare, which worried the daycare provider. They called Nathan to let him know, and Nathan headed towards the daycare, but first he decided to stop at home and make sure everything was okay with Denise. There was where he found a mysterious scene. The garage door was open and there was glass on the ground. Immediately, Nathan calls 911. However, when he was speaking with them, it was hard for him to actually get out any words or tell them what was going on. Finally, the police arrive and enter the home. Nathan had not even gone inside since he had gotten back to see if Denise was there. But sadly, the officers entered the house to find her dead with a gunshot wound to the head. While the police were investigating, they realized that Nathan had three guns in the house. One of them was missing and matched the same type of gun his wife had been killed with. Now, I wasn't able to find a whole lot of information in regards to where the investigation went immediately that Valentine's Day. However, Nathan was arrested for Denise's murder on March 6, 2013. Immediately, there was not a lot of information as to why he was arrested, and before I dive into the evidence, I do need to tell you about Ina. Ina was a 20-year-old exchange student from Lithuania that was sponsored by the Lutholds. So essentially, they had paid for her to come over, come back to the U.S. with them so that she could be an exchange student over here. Um, she came over to the U.S. to study ministry work and music, but Nathan became obsessed with Ina. They were constantly in communication, with even some text messages insinuating Nathan may have killed Denise as a gift for Ina so that they could be together. In addition to the text messages, they also found a day planner on Denise's bedside table. Within the planner was a letter, or more so a journal entry, from Denise. The letter goes on to say she knew her husband was having an affair and that she would not ever be good enough, as she hadn't been good enough for him the whole 17 years of their marriage. As if the affair and the letter aren't enough, Nathan had been searching online things such as, quote, how to silence a 40 caliber Glock, unquote, which was the same weapon his wife was killed with. Now, even to this day, Nathan maintains his innocence, although when it came to trial, it only took the jury 90 minutes to find him guilty of his wife's murder. He has since been sentenced to 80 years for this heinous crime. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that he did it. There's, um, he tried to play it off like there might have been a burglary, somebody had entered the home. However, they said there was, uh, besides the garage door being open and the broken glass, which, you know, Nathan could have easily done on his own, there was no sign of a struggle. Um, there was nothing taken, nothing was ransacked. I mean, unless the burglar just came in to shoot her in the head and left. You know, I don't see how that was even a plausible story. Exactly. I came up with one good lesson from these stories today. It was always the husband. Well, that's another one. It was always a <laughs> <the> husband. <laughs> divorce is a thing, people. Please don't murder your spouses. Get a divorce. Yes. It's right. a lot cheaper than the cost yep. you're going to have to pay in court when you go to court for murder. Okay? Exactly. <laughs> you're not wrong there. Okay, that's all. That was my insight. <laughs> all right. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed listening to our stories. Um, of course, we'll be adding photos and our sources to our social media posts. If you have any comments or even suggestions for future episodes, please reach out to us at caffeineandcatspod at gmail.com. Have a great week. Bye. Bye.